Today I am joined by Jenny Harmer and it is Infant Mental Health Awareness Week. So happy Infant Mental Health Awareness Week, Jenny. And to you, Dave, and to you. Tell us who you are, Jenny, for those that haven't heard your dulcet tones on a podcast before. <laughs> Well, probably not in a while because we've been a bit slow recently. So I'm Jenny. I'm health visitor down in South London. Um, and with my friend Amy, we do the I Am A Health Visitor podcast. So for anyone that is interested in health visiting or child health, it is a good podcast to follow into it because there's lots of helpful and informative information on there. Yeah, it's, um, we've got an amazing library of episodes, which um, we've covered a really wide range. We've done some really good interviews as well, um, especially mental health-wise. We, um, we had the pleasure of talking to Mark Thomas and Dr. Andy Mayers at the CPHVA conference about 18 months ago. Um, and also a um, really interesting one, if you've got um, for mental health awareness, um, with um, Bridget Hargrave, who wrote a book about postnatal depression. Um, about her own experiences and experiences of others, uh, which is really interesting, especially as she's not actually a healthcare professional. She's now, in fact, after her own experiences, trained to be a counsellor herself. Um, but it was a really interesting one to just get that slightly different um, aspect and angle on, on mental health. So this week, Infant Mental Health Awareness Week, are you going to be doing anything to celebrate? Unfortunately, probably nothing specific apart from working and being aware of infant mental health, as I think we all are on a sort of daily basis anyway. Um, obviously, with COVID at the moment, it's um, slightly put the kibosh on a lot of things which I think would have been organised. And it's something of, I think, even, I mean, we're what, 10, 11, 12 weeks in? It's still trying to adjust to those different ways of working and trying to really find where the ground is, especially um, there was new guidance last week coming in. So I'm fully expecting things to be shifting again as to um, what, our, what the expectations are of us with um, contacting families and how we're, we're going about trying to do those regular contacts that we should be doing. How do you think infant mental health will have been affected by COVID-19? Oh, humongously, humongously. Uh, it's tricky to try and work out an area that it hasn't impacted. So, I mean, if I think about it within most areas, children's centres are shut at the moment. So that first port of sort of intervention for a lot of us, going along to children's centre groups, to baby massage classes, to like early learning together, to try and encourage parent-child bonding. None of those are happening at the moment um, in many areas. Some things have been moved to Zoom. I've heard of some areas doing like one-to-one -one baby massage sessions over Zoom, but there's no chance for getting that integration. Very few places are doing baby clinics. I think the few that are are doing them by appointment only. So they're only available to parents with the wherewithal to actually be able to phone up to book an appointment. But many areas are not able to do any clinic facility. So duty lines have been expanded. But again, that's again capturing those with the wherewithal to make that call, which if your mental health isn't fantastic, that might not be something that you're really able to do. I think a lot of us are very worried that there is going to be a hidden portion of families and children who we haven't had that contact with, who we've been unable to really catch up with and find out what's happening and been unaware of problems coming through and things. 
With all that in mind, what have you seen that health visitors have been doing to try and mitigate all those effects? So I think for many of us, where we have got relationships with families already, trying to maintain those, whether it's via telephone. I've even, I, I've managed to get an upgrade on my own work phone a few weeks back and now I can have WhatsApp on my work phone, which has made a big difference in that I can now tell if I've sent a message, if it's been seen by a family and so know whether to chase it up, whether if they've not seen it or not registered seeing it, well, what does that mean? You know, work out what my next step's going to be. Also, a lot of health visitors have been continuing to have that autonomy in their role and being able to make their own judgment on whether someone does need a face-to-face or yeah, a PPE-to-face contact. It seems staff calling it face-to-face at the moment when you're in your mask and gown and everything. But yeah, it's um, and so you being able to use their own judgment to have that flexibility around and have those contacts. Also, it's quite interesting. I've heard you know, it's being able to try and engage with other professionals as well. So I mean, with the perinatal mental health teams and trying to keep abreast with them a bit more about where how they're seeing families. There's been a lot of training and sudden introduction of video conferencing, which brings its own issues especially if you're looking at a community who maybe are not so able maybe don't have telephone or the data packages to be able to sustain a video conference with health visitor with a mental health professional or even just the technical ability to be able to do that as well it's quite daunting for a lot of people and just that communication within the team as well I mean we've got in some teams there are some people who are shielding and so they're maybe taking on you know the work the how you, you're doing your work balance within your team can be that you, know, you allocate things to the person who's shielding, who is able to, to follow up by telephone, could even do telephone co- or video conferencing because they've got the, a work laptop and things. But again, sort of ensuring that they then have that communication, that understanding with the team where if something does need a face-to-face follow-up, then they take that on board and things as well. So it's as much down to how the teams are working together and effectively as much as how the health visitors are working with families as well. One of the things that came up in what you were saying was the part about we know how there is a real inequality of COVID and obviously its effects, you know, in the last few months now we've seen it have a, a huge toll on black and Asian and ethnic minority people, also on the poorest. Yeah. Are you witnessing the same in terms of the care that you're delivering as a health visitor? I think so, yeah. I mean, it's that tricky thing of really sort of trying to reaffirm with everyone who we're, we're speaking to about how to access our service, the duty line, encouraging that. Um, I think it varies from practitioner to practitioner, again, because some will be encouraging use of the duty line. Some with families might make sure they have their work number and encourage them to text message and things. It's trying to have that thought process around, well, how is this family going to contact me and work with me and I suppose yeah personally I'm lucky in that I'm quite adept at things like whatsapp text messaging I'm comfortable with people contacting me via that and even with email I think if you're not quite so up to speed with and comfortable using technology yourself that's an additional barrier as well and I think it is that awful thing of knowing that there are the gaps in who accesses and on yeah when you're doing duty line and things it might be you're noticing lots of calls from maybe the, the same kind of people I think with any duty line anywhere there's always been a worry that it's it's accessed a lot by the worried well and not so much by those who who need to use it and the really tricky thing at the moment is that that yeah partly with caseload sizes we're just not able to keep tabs on absolutely everyone it can sometimes feel a bit like a needle in a haystack 
if you've got someone who you've seen and they're on a universal caseload, but we're now thinking, oh, hang on, I vaguely recall this family having something going on, but you can't remember off the top of your head the name of the family, you know vaguely when you saw them last. It's that thing of having that chance to go right through your records and work out which family it is you were thinking about. Because even when we first got hints of everything that was happening beginning of the year, that was always too late then to think, well, who on my universal caseload would I actually have a worry about if we were in a global pandemic with the lockdown going on? And I think that's been really difficult. It's really interesting you say that because as you're speaking, I'm thinking back to my old practice when I was in frontline health visiting Mm. and that knowing your caseload, knowing the area that you visited. And I do wonder actually how having moved away from geographical health visiting caseloads to much more of a kind of corporate caseload, whether that makes the ability for us to respond in a pandemic much more difficult because there isn't a health visitor that knows every family in that area. You've got to rely on having that information in a team rather than as as an individual. And just as families are being split apart from being able to speak to other families, staff have been split apart and aren't able to work in a team approach. So it's fascinating you mention that because it's it's really kind of triggered thought in my head. And it's that funny thing where it's only when you talk about it, you start to think about it yourself. Because actually, to me, that was a little bit of an off-the-cuff comment. But now I'm thinking about it and thinking, actually, it does really show how maybe looking forward to what we do post-COVID is something that would be useful. be really looking at team dynamics and how do the teams work together? Because I think it's something which I think we it's sort of thing we have this sort of thing, this sort of insight in our training and education around that but that doesn't then often continue once we're qualified it is that feeling of right you've done that now off you go the theme for this year's infant mental health awareness week is 2020 vision seeing the world through baby's eyes do you think that health visitors see the world through baby's eyes Ideally, obviously we would. It feels at times like there are organisational obstacles, there are obstacles at the moment with even seeing those families directly. So it's that awful thing of, yeah, I never would have imagined doing new birth contacts over the telephone. And we just have no idea often what's going on in a family. And even if we're doing a video conference call, they have that choice of which bit of the room they're going to show us. And so we can't get a really clear vision of what it's like for that baby. I think overall, our general knowledge is very good. But I think applying practically applying it across the country is so difficult. And I mean, we've seen with the redeployment of some health visiting teams, how even if we're seeing the world through baby's eyes, trying to ensure that those who are then funding the service and things are seeing it through the baby's eyes is really difficult. And I think we're always stuck because this is something, you know, COVID something which is really affecting older people typically. There's really no appetite no worry around children and babies at the moment it feels and then it's going to suddenly happen and everyone will be oh my word you know how did this happen when we've all been there saying hello and that was going to be my follow-up question do organizations develop services through baby's eyes no i feel at the moment and understandably because they're budgets have been so severely cut from central government I think their first thought in the moment is ends up being an economic one of well what can what money have we got 
and then trying to almost like backtrack and work out what they can afford from what they've got which I know is, you know, they're, they're having to, you know, cut the coat to suit the cloth, as it were, at the moment, where else, ideally, they'd be looking at what would work best in their area and then making that adjustment, as it were. But I feel like everything, and it's really interesting to see if there is anything that they then try and keep from the changes we've had to make to services during COVID, because I can imagine there being some ways that we're working at the moment which make a big saving for them. Thinking about that, what things do you think we need to make sure are got rid of after COVID? I think there needs to be continued emphasis on face-to-face contacts, on dropping clinics. Um, I really feel that the purpose and use of children's centres is something which I, I've been you know, so aware of. It's amazing how I'd not even realised how many children I and families I often refer into children's centres. So suddenly not having that backup and not having that thing of children's centres serves you know, purpose for the family and purpose for myself as well. For the family, it's that thing of that protocol, that contact, that encouragement. And for us, it's that thing of we are based in children's centres, which I think a lot of health teams are now. It's then having that discussion afterwards of did this family attend? How were they? And finding out the other pair of eyes on the family and that seeing that dynamic from a different aspect and things as well. One of the things I would like to see going forward is the use of virtual conferencing for a lot of professional meetings, professional contact, because I feel for some, there is a lot of time wasted on travel going forward to those and things. I know for our safeguarding supervision, it's been something which actually it's worked really well doing that virtually sharing a screen so that we're both looking at the same information and has meant that we're able to use a smaller amount of time to do that. I also hope that there's some element of agile working for health visitors that is kept as well because I think for our mental health as practitioners that's actually been really useful at times to have that ability to work agilely to be able to sort of manage our own time efficiently and get a bit more of a balance between sort of work and life. I know you've been involved in some of the first thousand and one critical days work, including going to a few of the events in Parliament. Have you got any thoughts or reflections on that and and how that's worked? I think it's been really interesting in the times that I went up to Parliament and thought it was lovely being in a room with so many enthusiastic, passionate people. I think what is sad is that we're now, what, five, six years down the line from that first meeting that you took me to, and it doesn't feel like we've moved any further forward. Tim Loughton said that we were pushing against an open door. All I can say is we must be in a corridor with a heck of a lot of doors because we've not quite found that door yet that pushes open to to give us all the extra help that we need to be able to do our jobs. We have to maintain the noise around 1001 critical days. We have to really try and work hard to emphasize it to get knowledge about it more widely known because things are going so slowly and this is going to become such a big deal especially post-covid where we've had this cohort of new families who haven't had the same level of support and contact that anyone has had previously and I really hope that that does mean that MPs do start to listen do start to take it seriously because it's that thing where 
yeah, we need the MPs to really be getting the heat on the government and to try and make them, or they, they're answerable to this, and just to really try and get something in place to improve the service available for families and to improve provision for the families that need the extra help. That's just made me think of two points. The first is the issue of staffing levels. One of the things that I've raised repeatedly through the COVID crisis has been that it would have been bad enough if the NHS had come into this crisis with a well-resourced group of professionals. Yeah. Uh, but what we've seen is in some parts of the NHS, significant cuts to the number of health staff. So the ones that I more frequently talk about nowadays is mental health nurses yeah. and learning disability nurses. But we've obviously seen a, a real crisis in the number of health visitors over the last five or six years. How do you see that in terms of the COVID crisis? Is, is that an issue that you're coming across now or is it very much waiting for the return from lockdown and we'll see the absolute absence of health visitors? Yeah, it's going to be coming after COVID, I think. I think where we've ended up having to do telephone consultations and things, if anything, that's been easier to manage. And again, we've, you know, we've cut our transport time. We're in the office already. We're on the phone. We're able to be writing things up directly as we're talking to families and things. But afterwards... I think there's going to be a huge swell. I mean, I've heard of areas where they sent a text message out to all of their families reminding them that they're doing this duty line. And they had a huge spike in calls the following day from people who'd seen the message and were, were phoning up to say, yes, no, yeah, we still want health visiting service. And it was like, okay, have you, have you got a query or anything? No, no, we just want to double check we're still having a health visiting service. I think that kind of just demonstrates how much the service is wanted, is needed by families. And I think there will be a, a humongous strain on services when restrictions are lifted, where, you know, similar to what we're, you know, what I'm kind of dreading with shops reopening and things, I can almost picture on the news already, there'll be the long queues and everyone moaning about how much longer everything takes to do. Um, those first few clinics when restrictions are lifted are going to be so busy because there'll be so many people who have held on to queries, held on to worries, want to see how big the baby is, want to double check what's happening next. And I was speaking to a reporter this morning about a similar issue. And I suppose as you were talking there, the thing that was coming into my mind was the pictures that we saw, I think last week of people queuing over a kilometre through an Ikea car park yeah. to get in. And I suppose the difference will be is that the cues for the baby clinic, it won't be to buy Swedish meatballs. It'll be to talk about concerns that they've had for their child for a, for, yeah. for a number of weeks. Uh, and, and I suppose, you know, how will the service deal with that? The, the other thing that you said, this bit about some people might argue that we've seen a reduction in the number of contacts. We've seen a reduction in the frequency of visits. But actually, it, it hasn't had a, a knock-on effect in terms of uh, the number of child protection referrals or the number of people reporting depression. You know, it's, it's just two examples. Will that be an argument that managers will want to put forward as a reason to decommission services and to reduce them going forward? Have you got any concerns about that? Yeah, I mean, to be safeguarding-wise, I think there has been consistent if not slight rise in referral but with the point of view of depression yeah I mean it's that thing where if yeah I mean someone who's depressed is unlikely to be able to 
really wanting to call a duty helpline to to say that they are unless they've got sort of you know in, unless they're very aware and often I find that it's the parents who've maybe experienced mental health problems before who are more likely to to say I think I'm having difficulty can I get some help because they've had that help before found it a positive thing but yeah I think I would be very very wary of anyone trying to make judgments on what is needed what isn't needed service-wise based on the last four months or so because it's not an accurate picture it's not it's not something to be judged and I think the issue would be that we would then see this humongous jump and then not have the provision of service to be able to to help them. I was uh, looking on Twitter this morning and Sally Hogg who I interviewed earlier this week she did a couple of tweets and I think it fits in really nicely with some of the things that we've been saying. She says that she, she puts a health warning on it that this is back of the envelope maths Next week, all babies born in the UK this year, and hence this decade, will have spent at least half their lives in lockdown. That's no baby groups, no coffee mornings for parents, no grandparent cuddles. Though professionals have done amazing work via video and in PPE, there haven't been the opportunities to spot a mum in a clinic, waiting room or baby group who is having a Mm -hmm. tough day, take her to one side, give her a cuppa, hug, and say, you're doing okay. So much will have been missed. And I think yeah. that's kind of a, it encapsulates quite a few of the things that we've been saying today. Yeah. And I think initially it was that thing of looking on the bright side and, and that thing where it was interesting in those early few weeks, it was really evident how so much of what we've talked about and doing antenatal contacts and things, you know, we talk about um, encouraging families to set you to actually sort of to go into a bit of a bubble, a bit of a cocoon with baby to not have loads of visitors, not have loads of input. And in those early weeks, it was interesting to see the benefit of that, where we had babies returning to their birth weight quicker. We had seemingly better rates for for infant feeding because the mums weren't under any pressure to go out and do the shopping, to see loads of family and things. They could just stay home. Their partners were often at home more and so could offer that further support and things. But I definitely think as time's gone on, it has been getting it's become evident how much that extra bit of support is really helpful for them um and to not have that at all has been so so tough um and yeah I'm trying desperately hard not to bring Dominic Cummings into this because it just really was such a major fault you know having gone through all of that for the last sort of eight nine weeks and for so many of these families who had really worked hard to do things, just the two of them, or one single parent, to then see that was such a big slap in the face. Jenny, thanks for your time today. Obviously, good luck with everything that you get up to. And i pass on my best to colleagues that you're working with through really difficult times at the moment. Oh, will do, Dave. It's great to speak to you.